I will work day in and day out, wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be once again joined by Lauren Davison, the Young Fabian's Women's and Equalities Officer, and also a recent candidate for the Labour Party in Stoke-on-Trent in the recent local elections. Welcome back to the podcast, Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me again. It's great to be back. It's great to have you back on. And the first question um, that I'd like to ask is, what made you want to stand as a Labour candidate in Stoke in these recent set of local elections? Well, firstly, I think, for me, representation is really important. Um, that I haven't seen many young working-class people. I say young, I'm 27, I'm holding on to that with the skin on my teeth. But, like, I haven't seen many people, sort of, from my demographic, put themselves forward. Um, not just in Stoke, but anywhere, really, unless you go somewhere like London. So, I kind of just wanted to, I suppose, allow other people to say, like, look, it is okay to stand for public office. Like, growing up, I was kind of always given the impression that it wasn't for people like me because I was from a council estate, but actually it is. And we need more people from different backgrounds because often I think local government is very sort of white, um, retiree, um, quite a middle-class thing because you don't get paid a whole lot to do it. So it's good to get different people involved. But also I think I wanted to do my bit because even though where I stood was quite a safe Tory seat, I think in fact it was the safest Tory seat in Stoke. Um, I just wanted to make sure that everyone had the chance to vote Labour if they wanted to Mm. Uh, and that is something that Stoke Labour were great at doing we were the only party in the city to stand in every seat Um, So uh, when you're out on um, the doorstep what were the main concerns that voters were expressing to you and and expressing to the other other candidates on the doorstep? So from what I sort of gathered cost of living was the most common thing to come up on a national level um, because it sort of affects everyone in some way regardless of your wealth. So if you're living in a privately rented house, living below the breadline, you're going to worry about how you feed your family. Um, If you're maybe in a better off position in a a big house that you own, you're still going to be worried about paying your mortgage. So it's one of those issues that really sort of brings people together in terms of um it, it goes across social classes and backgrounds mm. another issue weirdly um nhs dentists that was something that came up a whole lot um just the idea that no one's um accepting patients in the nhs uh, and you have to go private to get anything done which is really obviously not ideal and then i'd say on a sort of local level um because although there was a massive emphasis on stoke with the national issues at play, because obviously mm. it was a big seat for Starmer, it was a big council for him to win back. The local was really, really important. So we had a Tory-led administration for the last eight years, um, and they like to talk about how they stand up to their own party in Westminster for the you know the betterment of Stoke, but it's not the case. So they were failing to get the basics right whilst just waving through cut after cut. So I think they cut something like six and a half million pounds um, at the last budget. And yet, you know, our streets were crumbling, potholes were awful. There's no functioning bus network. All of the basics and fundamentals you expect from a local authority to be doing, they just weren't. 
except for the couple of weeks before polling day when suddenly the roads started getting fixed and you know you, you started seeing some some changes so um they were doing that and then spending 30 million quid on car parks in the city center and you know the problem is you know infrastructure is important but what good are car parks if the high streets are just boarded up and the potholes on the roads stop you getting to said car park what's the point um, and that is pretty much what all of us heard every sort of canvassing session we did it was oh that bloody car park that's all we that's literally all we heard so that really really cut through and i think it's testament to our leadership in the city that they were able to capitalize on that um so how do you feel that the election campaigns not just labor's but also the conservatives and, and the other party standing were run did, did you feel at any point like it was a, a bitter campaign or, or do you think it seemed to be well-natured from your opponents during the election? I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't see... So I know we did quite a lot on social media, quite a strong dig- digital campaign. I didn't actually see an equivalent of that from any other party. I didn't really see the Conservatives putting adverts anywhere, which struck me as quite unusual because I know in the past they have and I've received them. Um we had quite a bit of uh, like paper printed leaflets through the door because um, where I live is a Tory um, ward and they had a city councillor. Had quite a few bits of leaflets and paper. We also had a visit from the local Tory MP, Jack Brereton. Um, my dad was not happy to have him on the doorstep. Let me just tell you that much. Um, that went down well. I don't think they'll be coming back. Uh, <laughs> But essentially, yeah, it was, they didn't bring anyone either. The Tories didn't bring any ministers, really, any shadow secretaries. They brought Chris Phelps and Robert Jenrick. I mean, they're not exactly heavy hitters, whereas we managed to get, like, West Streeting, Jess Phillips, Creek Gill, like, loads of really well-known people. Lisa Nandy, Keir came up as well. Obviously, he did that crime speech, which I was plonked on the front row behind him, completely unaware. I was like, oh, no. Um, but... So it just, it kind of felt like they weren't bothered, like the CCHQ just weren't completely, I, I don't know whether they just looked at the data and thought we're not winning this back and there's no point or whether that was all they could muster, I don't know. Um, in terms of like how good natured the campaign was, I didn't really focus on what anyone else was doing, I was just too busy what we were doing. Um, I did hear stories of the Conservatives and some of their activists being a little bit intimidatory around polling stations. Um, I believe that's been dealt with or it's been told to the right person to deal with it. Um, I also got sent by the public. The independents were were leafleting and um, basically as people were walking into polling stations going vote for such and such, which is obviously not allowed. Mm-hmm. So we've got footage of that. That's been dealt with. On a personal level, I've been out leafleting and stuff, and there'll be some conservative councillors who just keep driving past me constantly. And then, like, I felt like they were following me up the road at one point. I might have just been imagining that, but um, yeah, that's pretty much all that we experienced, really. Mm. Um, uh, to to what extent? I mean, you mentioned social media there, but to what extent do, do you think that social media played a, a part in the election? Yeah, so for us, more than them, I think it played a pretty big part. Um, we ran a, a really good digital campaign. We, had, we were working with teams from region. Um, they did a really, really good job. I think 
it was really important as well. Like I made a point of, because I ran a lot of the social media um, platforms alongside a few other activists. And we made a point of doing sort of daily canvassing update posts in the sort of year up to the election to make sure that we were seen to be visible. People knew we were out and about. We were working hard. We were grafting for this result. Um, and I actually think they were done really, really well. There was a lot of engagement with them. People liked to see that we were out in their area. Um, so even if they didn't get a leaflet, at least they knew that we'd been out and about. I think we had some really, really good content from our candidates as well, because a lot of our candidates had their own campaign pages, which they were doing bits and pieces to as well. Um, and just keeping that visible presence up, really, because, you know, um, you can't be everywhere at once. So if you're not in one part of your ward campaign, and at least if people log on and they can see that you're busy elsewhere, they know that you are working hard. You're not just sat doing nothing. Um, but yeah, I, I am really shocked that the Conservatives didn't utilise social media more than they did. Because I remember looking at the Conservative Facebook page um, in Stoke and they hadn't posted for like a week. And I was thinking, that's really, really odd. Like, you're in the middle of an election. Why have you not posted? So I don't know whether they just realised they weren't getting the engagement or whatever it was. Um, yeah, it was quite strange. Yeah. Um. So looking back on, on the campaign as a whole... Were there any particular moments that stood out? Do you have a particular favourite moment from the campaign that you were um, particularly pleased with, or, or, or something that that happened, or someone something someone said to you that that you were were quite happy with? Um, I'm going to just go. I think it's probably the obvious. I think the night of the election um, and the result, because just because I don't be honest, I went into it. I didn't doubt you know our capabilities. I didn't doubt the campaign we'd run, but I didn't know whether you know, given the state of things already, how well we would do. I don't think we, I could have predicted that we'd win, and not least with 29 councillors. That's a lot. And mm. um, I think, I, I can't remember how many we had before. It was like 14, maybe. No, we had no, we had like 12. And then to come up with like 29, that's massive. Um, and I remember, I think it was the first result of the night stuck out for me. Um, one of our councillors, Gurmeet, in Braidley and Chelgeath, he got a majority that was like ridiculous. He got like seventy nine percent of the vote, and that was the first result of the night. But obviously, at that point, we weren't sure whether that was a sign of things to come or whether it was just you know because he's really popular locally, he's mm. just done really well for himself. So there was that sort of moment of like, okay, well, let's be cautiously optimistic. And more kept coming in. It was just it was just brilliant. It was honestly brilliant. Um, another highlight, obviously, is going to be my friend Finlay. Um, Gordon McCusker getting elected in Hollybush. That was a great moment, beating the Conservatives. Um, yeah, it was, just, it was just a lovely night. It was just really nice to be able to celebrate with everybody and just watch everyone's hard work sort of bear fruits, really. Yeah. And I mean, as, as you mentioned there, obviously Labour did incredibly well in Stoke and uh, across the rest of the country um, as well. I mean, how do you think that's going to factor into where the party campaigns most um, concentratedly heaviest? At the next election well i do think it shows actually you know we made gains um uh, in places like medway um swindon places that were already on our sort of radar anyway as a party that we needed to win back we also did make gains in places like devon so i've got a friend called ben cooper who's now councillor um he won in in dartmouth which is you know formerly quite a Tory area in Devon. So I think it goes to show us that nowhere is off limits for us. We shouldn't just be thinking, oh, you know, the Lib Dems have been the natural opposition in Devon forever. Um, 
let's not bother like we should be campaigning everywhere and we can like everyone deserves to hear Labour's offering um you know I firmly believe we are the best party to govern this country forward after the Tories mess so at the end of the day I think it, it just goes to show us that yes we might have certain areas that we desperately need to win back like Stoke the Red Wall places like the Black Country um because actually we've done really well in Staffordshire as well which is quite a Tory area we've won back councils in Staffordshire um which is a step in the right direction but I think yeah it, I don't think we can look at it as such simplistic terms anymore such as the Red Wall versus everywhere else like you know mm. obviously places like Medway and Kent and things like that um you wouldn't naturally put that as one of our target areas but we've shown we can do it so we might as well campaign everywhere mm, absolutely um turning to the next general election what do you think should be the Labour Party's main areas of policy focus um, so if I'm putting my non-criminologist hat on, I'll go for <laughs> cost of living and sorting out the cost of living crisis, um, the climate crisis, so dealing with like renewables and sorting out things like insulation. I think we've done some good stuff. Ed Miliband has been working really hard on that. Um, the Clean Air Act is something that's coming up as well, which is really, really good. Um, and I know a good few people that have been working on that. Um, Adam, who's now the PPC from Newcastle on the Lime. He's been helping write that. Um, yeah, I think that, I'd say cost of living, energy crisis and climate crisis. Um, and also things like, I guess, the justice system. I think that you don't need to be a criminologist to realise that that's in quite a dire state. Um, I, I'm really appalled at some of the stuff. I know we're going to touch on it later, but what the Met Police have been doing recently. I think there needs to be some real conversations about policing reform um in this country because it's just absolutely a nightmare um especially seeing those two dogs get killed very recently um that really shows how much i think they're overstepping they are their um their remit mm. um and, and of course you mentioned the, the the met police and we had the um the coronation recently and mm. the met's arrest arrest of protesters and the legislation which allowed that um, to happen has come under fierce criticism. How dangerous do you think that this legislation is to the right to protest? And what would you like a future Labour government to do about it? Well, I think it goes to show when you've got Conservative MPs like David Davis basically saying, look, this legislation or, or you know, preventing protest, even peacefully, is just wrong. It's it's just simply not okay in a democratic nation. Um, and, you know, we are better than that or we should be better than that. So I would like to see the Labour Party repeal it. However, I have seen people say, and this is a point, I, I might be wrong, but I think I've seen people say that if you repeal it totally, then repeal bans on people protesting outside abortion clinics. So it would kind of need to be done like amended rather than repealed is my understanding of it because obviously we need to keep those vital protections in place for you know people that are using abortion clinics mm. basically um that would be a mistake to get rid of that so if we can amend it that would be perfect but i don't I, being honest i don't know whether Keir Starmer will do that given some of his comments about just stop oil protesters um, and i feel like he's really leaning into the sort of tough on crime at um, getting quite populist about things, which, as you probably know from episodes with me, it's not something I like in the justice system. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that, for me, is where where we are with that. 
do you think in terms of the way that um, protesters are viewed and the right to protest is viewed is that sometimes what happens is that the media presents a, a, a version of protesting so whether it's just stop oil or, or, or other uh, protesters and just shows them as a, a nuisance that has to be dealt with without properly fully explaining the importance of the right to protest and how protests have positively changed the law both in this country and around the world in the past and that there's this kind of like conflation in the media which then feeds into the public of all protests are all protesters being a, a quote-unquote nuisance or it's just something that has to be dealt with rather than an important right in a democracy. Yeah, I definitely think so. But I think the main motivation behind that, rather than you know journalists having a deep-seated hatred of protesters, it's more to do with the fact that they, they, they know that selling papers is predicated on... Um, tapping into the emotions of the public so the anxieties the fears the angers of the public it's going to annoy people if you're seeing you know you know the whole thing uh, uh, last year i believe it was when someone threw a can of soup over a, a painting you know it that kind of thing gets amplified because they know it annoys people and when you annoy people you evoke an emotion and then you sell papers you create a story um, so that is the motivation behind it. But what I find very interesting is, yeah, like you say, there seems to be very little consideration about the implications for preventing um, the people's right to protest. Because, you know, the, the media and journalists, they scream bloody murder if there's any kind of infringement on their rights as journalists to a free press. They need to be looking at the way that their actions might be contributing to curtailment of the right to protest mm -hmm. absolutely um now uh obviously mentioned the, the criminal justice system and reform to it is um urgently needed and i think most people agree that there is um some need of reform to the system but which parts of the criminal justice system do you think a future labor government could and should prioritize reforming Oh gosh, um, <laughs> to start, I would say one of the big things, um, I, this is the things that what I think they should do, what I think they could do are very different because I just don't think as much as Keir Starmer talks about, uh, his time as director of public prosecutions, um, I think he lacks that courage to do stuff that could be considered anything, any, any, in any way controversial. In the justice system because i think we need to look at our drug laws because i think we need to look have a serious conversation about how we classify drug laws um we need to sort the prisons out for a start because you can't have a functioning justice system if your prisons are in total disarray like i don't think we're that far off from another pretty big prison disturbance mm. um just because of the way that uh, i would say labor are partly to blame for our time in government actually but i would say that the way our prisons are overcrowded they're really awful conditions and this tendency that politicians have got at the minute to say we need more prison we need more prison places so they just got to lock loads more people up and i just i think 
if we can correct this tendency to go completely populist when it comes to the prisons and justice system, I think we'll be okay. But I, I don't have a lot of faith at the moment that we won't do that because some of the things I was seeing coming out of the Labour Party, things like naming and shaming um, drug users in local papers, which <laughs> really mm. scares me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we need to have a serious conversation about things like drugs, prisons, and some of the more uncomfortable topics that maybe uh, moderate politicians are scared of alienating the electorate over. I think you're just going to need to do it because if you don't, it's just going to get worse and worse. Mm. Uh, one of the things that um, people often discuss in this regard is the position of Home Secretary being a, uh, a and the Home Office being a department that is... Um, not only failing to do its job properly, but it's almost too much of a, a, a leviathan, too large to handle all the various things um, that it's responsible for. Do, do you think that it would be better if the position of, of Home Secretary was uh, abolished and the department was split up into areas that could focus um, much more on, on, on things in a way that the Home Office doesn't really seem to be able to do at the moment because it is such a a, a large and, and almost um, unwieldy department. I mean, before we talk about abolishing and splitting the department and its inability to function because of that, I think we need to talk about its inability to function because of Suella Braverman, who is mm. actually not fit to be anywhere near public office. Like some of the some of the things she says and some of the things she clearly believes in just run antithetical to what should be a good public servant. Um, her views on things like policing um, and the idea that she doesn't think sort of hate crimes are crimes just sorry I had to get that out there just think she should be nowhere near public office but anyway back to your actual question uh, about splitting I don't really have an opinion on this which is something you probably won't hear me say a lot but I don't really I, it's not something I've kind of really um, thought about I know I think it was the Lib Dems or the Greens one of the two of them suggested that policy Um I mean, from an operational level, I can understand why they are together because there are some things that are interconnected and need sort of, you know, um, need sort of that level of joined up working. So I can understand why they're put together. Um, but yeah, I think it would need to be looked into first before splitting anything apart. Another organisation um, that's come under a great deal of scrutiny is the Met, um, not just for the policing of the coronation but a long long list of um, failures uh, going back years years decades what do you think can be done to restore public tra trust and make the Met an open and transparent organization do you think anything can be done to reform it and, and make it trusted by the public again really difficult to say because it just feels like there's not really a week that goes by that or even maybe a day at this point where the Met don't overreach and do something awful um honestly I, I don't know the answer to that because people are saying like disband the Met blah 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 like really realistically you need a police force so I don't understand how you're gonna disband it and then bring something back from the ashes that is magically different because with the current laws in place with policing, the things that they're allowed to do, the police powers they have, um, they've got that mandate to overstep. So technically they're not actually doing anything wrong in cases like um, stopping protests and stuff like that. Um, when it comes to things like Sarah Everard and the fallout from that, and we've seen things about police officers being implicated in sex 
cruel crimes and being allowed to stay on in the force. Um, there obviously needs to be more vetting as well. Because I remember seeing somewhere, I think it might have been Yvette Cooper that said it, but essentially there is not a lot of vetting that goes on um, when you become a police officer. There are certain things that are not picked up on. So it could be like, uh, I, don't, I don't know what specifics it was. I think it was like to do with your previous record or like history of behaviour, mm. things like that. You're just not vetted enough. So I think there needs to be... Um, like a lower threshold for when a police officer does something wrong. I don't think it should be a case of like, oh, we'll give them another chance. Blah, blah, blah. Like it should be a case of you do something wrong and you're out. I don't see how it can be reconciled that you can stay in a force when you've been accused or have done something, you know, grossly horrific. Um, so yeah, I, but I wouldn't say it just stops at the Met. I would say it's an inherent problem with the policing model in this country anyway. We're supposed to be policed by consent. But there needs to be more thought about this. Because how do we withdraw consent? And is it consent if you can't withdraw consent? You know? Yeah. So I think it needs to be looked into a lot more. Um, and I think there needs to be far greater recourse, basically, for when things go wrong. Because at the minute, there isn't. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, um, we're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast, Lauren. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me. But I do have one final question. We've, of course, got um, Eurovision coming up. Um, the final will be tomorrow, uh, today rather, in um, Liverpool. It'll probably uh, all happen. Everyone listening will know uh, what will happen by the time the podcast comes out. Uh, but my final question to you is this. If you had to perform at Eurovision... What song would you choose to perform and who would you most like to perform it with? Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, that's a big question. Um, well, I've heard... Well, I've not heard, but I've seen Little Mix, obviously. I know they've disbanded and they got rid of Jesse. So I'm wondering if I could just sort of slot in as the new member of Little Mix and maybe perform one of their songs. That would be pretty good. Yeah, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure they'd be more than happy to have you. I think that's a great answer. Well, yeah, I'm a delight. Why wouldn't they be? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much again for coming on uh, the podcast, Lauren. If people want to find out more about you, the kind of things that you're um, getting up to, where should they go to, to find out more about you? So I'm very active in the Young Fabians at the moment and Open Labour. Um, you can find those on Twitter. And my personal Twitter is LaurenD2212. Um, oh, and also, can I plug Labour for Trans Rights as well? Because I'm the secretariat of that. Um, just as a little bit of background, we are fighting for the trans community in and out of the Labour Party um, and trying to sort of hold the leadership and other structures in the party to account to support trans people because that's very important. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally agree. And, you know, anybody who isn't already uh, supportive or, or following um, both of those, you know, make sure that you are. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. 
I hope you listen to the next one.